have your Bible, I encourage you to turn with us to the book of Acts. The book of Acts, chapter 17. If you do not have a Bible and would like to borrow one of ours, you will find one under one of the chairs in front of you, and you will find our text on page 926. Our text will be on page 926. Today is Easter Sunday, the day that we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. It's why we have sung songs about him. That's why we have prayed in his name. That's why we have sought to give him worship. But all of that begs a larger question from us, and that is, uh, why do we worship him? Why do we worship Jesus Christ? Why is it important? Uh, What makes him so special? Why do we see him as God? To answer these questions, we want to look to the Bible, which tells us about Jesus. And as I've said, we're looking to the book of Acts, which records to us how the first Christians, the people who lived with Jesus, who heard him teach, who saw him die and raised back to life, how they spread their message to all peoples everywhere. And our account begins with one of Christ's apostles. It is one of his special disciples, his messengers that established the church, the Apostle Paul. He has come uh, from one city telling uh, about Jesus into Athens and is waiting for some of his other partners in ministry, his fellow missionaries, to catch up with him that they may continue on in their journey. And we're going to begin reading the first few verses of our, of our narrative uh, right now. And then as we seek to understand it and unpack it, we will pick it up and read more in just a few moments. For now, though, I direct your attention to verse 16 of Acts 17 and encourage you to follow along as I read. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogues with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And when they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting, for you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. This is the word of God. For some of us, when we hear about Jesus and the resurrection, maybe even the songs that we just sung and the things that we have already said, you will be like some of these philosophers and said, These are strange things to our ears. We don't know what is going on. This sounds like Babel to us. And the question is, is it Babel or is Paul onto something here? Uh, is there truth to Paul's message? That's what we want to find out today as we, as we seek to understand who Jesus is and why we should worship him as God. One of the most amazing things about this story that we're going to read is how similar the, the culture and the situation was in Paul's day in Athens as to our culture today. And as we walk through this, in fact, that's the first thing we want to take note is this similarity. And as we look at three things this morning, the first thing we want to see is that we live in a culture of many gods. Just like Athens in that day, we live in a culture of many gods. The scene begins as the writer of this book, a doctor named Luke, uh, tells us that while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw the city was full of idols. Now, just picture the scene in your mind's eye. Paul 
a, a Jew from a Jewish background, raised as a Jew, has seen the fulfillment of all of his upbringing in Jesus Christ. And he worships him alone as God now. And he walks into the city and everywhere he looks are temples and altars and these idols, these massive statues everywhere of all of these gods that are being worshipped by the people there. And these things uh, still exist uh, in museums and in some places uh, in these very areas. And what we uh, what we see, what we know from history, is that Rome actually encouraged all of these altars, all of these temples, all of these statues. Uh, they encouraged what, what we would call God swaps. When the Roman Empire went and took over a people and assimilated them into the empire, what they said was, uh, well, what gods do you worship? Give those to us and we'll, we'll worship them as well. But then here's all the gods of the Roman Empire. You worship those as well. And the thought was, if everybody's mixed in worshiping the same gods, no one's going to fight each other in some kind of uprising against Rome. I mean, how are you going to know which people to fight? You're all worshiping the same god. At least that's how the Romans thought. And so here, uh, so, so here Paul goes in and he sees all of this pluralistic sharing of gods, and it's evident everywhere that he goes. Now, we just said that the culture in which we live is similar to this culture in Athens, but we really don't have big idols everywhere, do we? I mean, we'll have churches, and we may have a, a temple here or there, even a synagogue, and in some places a mosque. But we really don't just drive down the street and see these big temples. There's no statues out anywhere. We don't really have idols, per se, do we? Well, that question's a little bit hard to answer, and it may not be as clear of an answer as you think. Uh, think about this observation that one man made from going to a Seattle Seahawks game. He says, when we went, every ticket for the entire season is expensive, yet sold out. Our seats of the game that I attended were in what Paul calls the third heaven. In other words, they're as high as you can get. And the cost was about $40 each. In addition, parking a hot dog and a drink costs about the same as a year's tuition at a state college. People walked many blocks in a driving rain that was so intense that parts of the city were flooded. Rivers had spilled over their banks and mudslides were leading the nightly newscasts. Nonetheless, seemingly every seat in the stadium was filled and fans stood in the rain for the entire game, not even using the seats they paid for, wearing the team colors and screaming while music blared at the sound system and half-naked young women provided the eye candy. In short, I was at a worship service with a congregation that was larger more devoted, more generous, and more vocal than any church in America. I was surrounded by people no less religiously zealous who had painted their faces to gather together and cheer on their gods who happened to play quarterback, tailback, and such while wearing replica jerseys in tribute and giving one another high fives and celebration whenever one of their gods made a great play. Now when you hear about a football game from that perspective, suddenly it's not so clear about our idolatry in this country, is it? The reality is, though, we may not worship God to appear as statue idols. That doesn't mean that we don't have our idols. It doesn't mean that we don't have our multiplicity of gods in this country that we worship. But maybe we're getting ahead of ourselves. What is worship anyway? We've already used that word a couple times in the service. What does it mean? The Bible teaches that worship is about living our life, both individually and with others, as so as to show the glory of a person or a thing. So to glorify something is to make much of it, to exalt it, to show its greatness. So the thing that we are trusting in and giving praise to, the thing that we are seeking to glorify and lift up the most, that ultimately is the thing that we worship. That is the thing that is our God. In the end, we will give our time and our energy and our body and our money and our focus, our devotion, our passion. We will give everything to that which we glorify 
the most. We will even make sacrifices for it. And on one level, there's nothing wrong with that. God has actually made us, he's designed us to be a people who worship, who give love and affection and adoration and praise. The problem comes in what we worship. God has designed us to worship himself, and the problem is we like to worship other things instead of him. So everyone is a worshiper. The question is, the difference comes in, what is it that we worship? In fact, the human heart can make just about anything into an object of worship. Everything from political causes to hobbies to the environment to recreation to our physical appearance to sports, as we already heard, to money and health and family and music and sex. If it's out there, if it exists, if it's real, it can become an idol in our life. It can be something that we worship. So the question is this, what do you worship? What is your God? Now, you may think you knew coming in here, uh, and now maybe you're not so sure. So let me give you some questions to ask yourself. This will help you answer the question, what do you worship? What is your God? Who or what do you trust to make your life better? Who or what is the most important thing to you? If you could have anything or any experience you wanted, what would it be? Who or what makes you most happy? What is the one person or thing you think you could just not live without? What do you spend your money on? Who or what do you devote your spare time to? And then you have a long day at work when there's nothing, to go, there's nothing going on, the TV's just in the background, and your mind begins to wonder, what is the one thing it almost always wanders to first? And the answer to those questions are going to reveal what it is that you worship, what it is that you love and give praise to as your God. And as a Christian, my answer to all those questions should be the same. Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ. And that should be true for all Christians. But again, that, that's, that's begging the question, but why is that true? Why is it that Jesus Christ should be the object of my worship? Why is it that he should be the one that I give my affection to, that I give my money towards, that I offer up even my body for, make sacrifices for? Well, to answer that question is the very thing that Paul wanted to give to the philosophers at the Areopagus. And essentially, uh, he's already identified what is true of us, that we live in a culture of many gods. But then that he gets to his answer in this, and that is there, there is only one true God. That's the second, second thing that we want to see this morning if you're taking notes. We need to see there is only one true God. We were told that Paul brought his message to everyone, both his fellow Jews in the synagogue and everyday people on the street. He even bumped into some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers who also conversed with him. And there was some confusion as to what Paul was on about. And they said, uh, look, why don't, why don't we take him to the Areopagus? That's where, that's where we talk about everything coming and going. And we'll, we'll, we'll sit down and we'll actually listen to what he has to say and see if we can figure it out. And Luke tells us in verse uh, 21 of, of uh, Acts 17, all of the Athenians and the foreigners who live there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. Well, we're like that, aren't we? I mean, we love our Facebook and our Twitter and our blogs and our news service, and we love knowing what's new, what's coming, what's going. And, and obviously they didn't have the technology back then, but what they did have were people and ideas floating. And they would be willing to listen, at least at first, to any new idea. Oh, you've got something new. You've got a new idea about this or that. Come and tell us about it and, and, and let us hear about it. And so verse 20, they say, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. And Paul's like, Sure. That's why I came here, is to tell people my message. And so he backs up, though, and he, he wants to, before he zooms in on the point, he wants to lay this broad foundation, and he says three things. First of all, he says this, 
the only true God, the one true God that I'm here to tell you about, he is the creator and sustainer of life. Paul begins in verse 22 saying, I perceive that you are in every way very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. Now, we know from secular literature that the Greeks, this was not an uncommon thing. It wasn't like the only idol to an unknown God there, the, the only altar. They had these all over the place because the Greeks were very polytheistic and they would line up all their gods and they would love to pay tribute to all of them because they were fearful that they would do something bad to them if they didn't. And so they thought, you know, we don't want to offend any god, so let's even just say, here's this statue of this unknown god. There's probably a god there we don't know about. We don't want to make him or her or it mad either, so we'll give worship to it. And Paul says, therefore, what is what you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. In other words, you're worshiping all of these things. You're even worshiping something you don't even know what it is. That's the god I'm going to tell you about. It's the one god that's missing in the midst of your pantheon. Now understand, Paul is not advocating their polytheism. He's not saying it's okay to worship all these other gods. I'm just going to tell you about another god. I mean, we have people, even some so-called Christians, who want to make that case today. Say all, all religions are just the same. We're all worshiping the same god. We just call them different and do it different. And for Paul, that's nonsense. That is absolute rubbish. And what he wants to say is this. You you are, are worshiping all these gods, but you have missed the one true God. The only real God that's out there, you've missed him. And now I want to tell you about him. And he begins with this, that he is the one who has made us and even now sustains our life. Paul says in verse 24, I proclaim the God who made the world and everything in it. He is Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples made by man nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything else. Now, if we were to walk down the street and ask someone today, who is God or what is God, you would get lots of different answers. But Paul says from the outset, here is the basic truth. The true God is the one who made everything. And as the creator, the creation belongs to him. He is sovereign Lord all of, over all of it. But more than that, he also is the sustainer. He keeps things going. All that we have right now, all that who we are, has come to God as a gift to us. So, for instance, just, just right now, just, just pause, stop for a minute, and just take a nice, deep breath. Just You just breathe God's air. You just breathed his air, not it wasn't your air. You didn't do anything for it. He made it, and he just gave that to you as a gift. He did that to sustain your life. The, the movement of your muscles and your veins constricting, uh, constricting and expanding, flowing blood all through your body, making your brain function right now, all of that has come to you this very moment as a gift from God, not just the one who created you, but the one who sustains your very life. And so Paul says, don't think that you're going to serve him. Don't think you can do anything for him. He doesn't need you. You, 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 you can't put him in a box somewhere. You can't hide him in a temple. You can't make this God uh, some little trinket that you stick in your pocket and pull out and rub his, his head when you need good luck. It doesn't work that way. He doesn't need you, but you need him. You need him for everything that you have. And so Paul follows on from that and says the true God is not just the creator and sustainer of all things and all life, but the true God is the father of all humanity. He's the father of all humanity. Look at verse 26. 
this true God, he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place that they should seek God in the hope that they might feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Now, now don't be confused about what Paul is saying here when he's talking about humanity being his offspring, about him being the father. It's very generic language. And think about it like this. My, my children are my children because they came from me. They came from they came literally from my body in one sense. They're they're my kids. But if if I was a if I was a if I was a punk, and and if I had kids and then bailed on them, and and and, and took off, that doesn't mean I'm not their father. I'm still their father. But what it means is this: they don't know me as father. They don't acknowledge my fatherhood. I have abandoned them. In the same way, God says, look, you are all my offspring, but that doesn't mean that you know me. That doesn't mean that you acknowledge my fatherhood. One pastor from England, Vaughn Roberts, was going on a trip to Bali, India. And while he was there, he got into a taxi with his friend. And he says that they saw this object hanging from the dashboard of the taxi. So they asked the driver, so what is that thing? And he said, that's my God. And they said, really, does your God speak to you? And they said, that taxi driver just laughed and laughed and laughed. That was the most hilarious thing he'd ever heard. He just thought it was, it was just the height of folly to think this little God would actually talk to him. Commenting on this scene, Robert said this, Human religion so often bears the same relationship to God that billboards do to Coca-Cola. It promotes the thirst without quenching it. That was his God, always reminding him there is something beyond this world, so he keeps the thirst, but he can't quench it. There is much talk about God and religion and spirituality in our society, isn't there? But no peace of mind, no assurance of forgiveness, no relationship. That's the situation we find ourselves when we create false gods to worship, when we have idols in our life. But what does Paul say? The one true God wants us to know him. He wants to be found. He's not playing hard to get. He is desiring a relationship with us. Paul says this God is actually not far from each one of us, and he hopes that we might feel our way toward him and find him. He has placed, in fact, a spiritual hunger for himself in our very souls. That's the reason why we love to worship things. We love to give things praise, things that are bigger and and more outside ourselves. I mean, just think about going and seeing something like the Grand Canyon. What, I mean, what do you do? You stay this big, essentially, ditch in the ground, and you just, you just give praises to it. You take pictures from every angle, and you're hanging off donkeys looking on the side because it's massive, and it's amazing, and it's glorious, and you want to tell everybody about it. And, and that capacity for worship, to give praise, God has put that there so that we would seek after him and find him and give him praise and be in relationship to The problem is, rather than seeking the true God, we have denied what we know, that he's out there and that he exists. And instead, we have sought to find, we have sought to find our fulfillment, our hunger for worship and other things like money and success and relationships and pleasure, even religion. And these are just idols that we worship. They deceive us and we deceive ourselves to think that longing for a relationship with God will ever be fulfilled in those things. 
they can never fill the void because there's no intimacy, there's no relationship, there's no joy. So there's no satisfaction. The void is still there. The longing is still there. And what makes the whole situation worse is that in rejecting the true God for other gods, we bring condemnation on ourselves. Think about it like this. If, 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 I, if I had said something wrong to you and I had been mean and I'm not, uh, you know, I'd really, you know, I, 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 knew, I knew what your button was and I was pushing it hard. And, and you just gave me what I probably deserved and that was a big slap across the face. Well, that, I mean, that's just, that's not what we do in polite society, is it? At least that's not used to be. I don't know, maybe it is now. But we just don't go around, you know, uh, slapping people. And you may, you may say, you know, you were rotten mean, but, but, I'm, but I'm sorry for, for slapping you. Well, you know what? That's probably all I, that's it. You know, the cops are going to be called on you. You're not going to be arrested. You're going to be put in a prison for slapping me because I'm a nobody. I mean, in the grand scheme of things, I, I'm, I'm nothing. You know, if God is gracious, I'll be here, you know, 75 years and I'm done. In the grand scheme of thousands of years in which uh, the earth has been here and may continue on, who am I, right? But now imagine God. Imagine a God who created you, who even now is giving you life and breath and everything that you need, providing for you. And he says, I desire a relationship with you. I desire you to know who I am and to give me praise and worship. And we say, no thanks. And we effectively slap him across the face and say, I'd rather make up my own gods. There's a difference. There's, there's a large difference in rejecting me and rejecting him. A God who is infinitely wise, infinitely holy, infinitely just and glorious and beautiful. When we reject him, then judgment must take place. Punishment must be given out. And that's what Paul says. The true God is the judge of sin. That's the third thing he tells these Athenians. Paul ends where he began with the ignorance of the Athenians. That is a lack of knowledge about the one true God. And he says, though you are ignorant of him, though you do not know him, you are still responsible to him. In other words, it's not as if they're just innocent. It's not as just if they made a mistake, that they didn't know any better. He says in verse 29, being then God's offspring, we ought not to think the divine image is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. Times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Paul says, if we're God's offspring, if we're his children, elsewhere the Bible talks about us being made in the image of God, and we were created to know him, then we shouldn't be fooled into thinking we can make a God with our own hands. I mean, you, you read the prophets in, in Isaiah, and, and you, have, you have guys that basically it says, you know, they're, they're getting ready to build their house, and they have a leftover log. So, so they sit down, and they start hacking away, and they start cutting, and they make some, you know, some ghoulish thing, you know, bleh, sitting there looking out there, you know, and they put that up, and they bow down to it, and they say, oh, that's my God. What? You just carved it with your hands. If it was a God, would it really need you to do that? Paul says, no, you know that's not true. There's no, no God that's like that. More than that, he says elsewhere in Romans chapter 1 that God has left the fingerprints of his existence all over this universe. You go out and you look at the night sky and you see these stars, these, these massive, blazing, burning balls of fire up in the heavens, these planets that circle them, and they continue in the same motion year after year after year for centuries. 
You, you go to the zoo and you see animal life and plant life and birds, and they all live in this web of harmony and relationship. So that, you know, in one program it talked about how, you know, uh, the, 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 these, these uh, bees come in and they, they pollinate this flower and this other insect feeds on this flower and this thing goes over here and it gets eaten by this thing. And it's all this massive web of life. It's interconnected. It never breaks down and it keeps going. And you can't look at that and say, oh, that, that just all happened by chance. No. I mean, it's just too complex. It's too beautiful. It's too glorious. There is one who has made it, and he's screaming to that creation through its beauty and its magnificence and its glory. I am here. And we say, no thanks. I'd rather worship sex. I'd rather find my fulfillment in this broken, fallible person who I know is going to let me down one day. I'd rather, I'd rather find fulfillment by sticking a needle in my arm or drinking myself to death. Because that's, that, I mean, that's, a, that's a great God, isn't it? No, it's not. It's not. And the whole time, we are filling our lives with junk, trying to find satisfaction. God is sitting there saying, why don't you come to me? Why don't you come to me? It's like somebody anemic trying to restore their health by shoving ho-hos down their throat when there is a steak dinner in front of them. It just doesn't make sense. It is the height of folly. And Paul says, in refusing to seek God, God will judge that as sin. He cannot be ignored or excused. And yet, and yet, Paul says, in his mercy, he has, he has overlooked the times of ignorance. In other words, the, the, the minute that person out in the field who carved up the little God, the moment he gave homage to that instead of the one true God, God had every right to end his existence. To either make him a grease spot in the forest by lightning or to just separate him molecule by molecule and spread him to the four winds. That was God's right as creator. That is how much he is worth our worship, how glorious he is. And yet he didn't do it. Paul says he had patience. He overlooked their ignorance. He overlooked their rebellion until now. Because now he has sent forth his own son to be the savior of the world the one who should draw all of our attention to the one true god and through that one man he has fixed a day by which all the world will be judged therefore he says the call now is for us to repent of our idolatry to turn away from our false gods and embrace the one true god and so this is the last thing i want to see this morning that is this we've seen we live in a culture of many gods we've seen paul say that we understand there's only one true god therefore Lastly, we must decide whether to mock or to worship the one true God. We must decide whether to mock or worship the one true God. Remember what Luke told us earlier. Verse 18, Paul was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. That is the very heart of Paul's message. That is where he is going even now. He, he says there is one whom God has raised from the dead. He, he is getting ready to unfold the, the beauty of the picture of the gospel. And as we'll see in a minute, he gets cut off and they won't let him finish. But guess what? We've got the rest of the Bible. We've seen the message that he preaches over and over and over again. We see it in this book, Acts, and we see it most succinctly in his letter, one of his letters to the church at Corinth. And he says this, Now I would remind you, brothers and sisters, of the gospel I preached to you. Now let's just stop there. What, that word gospel uh, is a word in Greek that we've brought into English. It just means good news. Good news. So far we've heard a lot of bad news, haven't we? 
that there's one true God who has made us and sustained us and cared for us. He's shown love to us and we've rejected him and tried to make our own gods and therefore he's going to punish us. He's going to judge us rightly for our, for our rebellion, for our idolatry. That's pretty bad news. Not something we want to hear at Sunday morning at 11 o'clock. But here's the thing. When you understand that the bleakness of the bad news, then the good news is all the sweeter. It's all the more glorious. It's all the more magnificent. He says, I, verse 3, this is on the, the back of your note sheet if you want to follow along. I delivered to you as a first importance what I also received. Paul says, I'm not making this up. This is the message that Jesus Christ himself gave to me, and I in turn gave to you. Nothing different, nothing added, nothing taken away. Here is that message, that Christ died for sins like idolatry. He died for sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve, that's his disciples. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, that's his half-brother. Then to all the apostles, last of all, Paul says, he appeared also to me. Now, this is the message that Paul was first preaching in the streets when he drew the attention of these philosophers. It was the message that got him noticed. It was the message of the one man that God had appointed to judge the world, the man Jesus Christ. And it's this gospel message, this good news that helps us understand why Jesus should be worshipped. Why he should be bowed down to. Why he should be sacrificed to. Why we should live for him and love him before anything else. First, it's because he came to die in fulfillment of the scriptures. That is, he came to die in fulfillment of God's word. Here's the thing. You go back and you read the Old Testament. It tells us why we have sinful hearts. It tells us why we are idolatrous and we reject the one true God. But here's what also tells us, that God is going to fix the problem. The problem is a sinful heart, a damaged heart. And God says that he will give us a new heart. And he makes two kinds of promises. The farther you get into the Old Testament, he says, first of all, I'm going to come. And I'm going to fix the problem. I will conquer this enemy of a sinful heart. But then he also says, I'm going to send the king, my servant, and he will fix the problem. And so you're asking yourself, well, how does this work? Is God going to come with the king, or is God wrong? Is he making two different kinds of promises? Did he change his mind? And what you see is, no, 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 it's both. When Jesus Christ comes, he is not just a man. He is not just the Savior King. He is God in the flesh. And so what was mysterious in the Old Testament becomes so clear in the New that Jesus Christ is God the Son, taking on human form as the Savior King who will defeat sin and death and things like idolatry, so that we can know the one true God. How did he do this? He did it by dying on the cross. Because there, for the few hours that he hung there, he did it for us. The judgment, the, not the capricious kind of, I'm angry and I just want to get back at somebody. No, the righteous, just wrath of God against sin our sin, our idolatry, our rebellion, instead of being poured out on our lives on the final day, it was poured out on Jesus Christ as he hung on the cross. He took what we deserve. Think about it like this. It was on Christmas Day in 1967, and Air Force Major Jerry Sellers was flying a night reconnaissance mission in Vietnam, and he got a call he was not expecting. It was a call for help from a ground patrol in danger of being overrun by the enemy. Now Sellers did what he knew was not a wise thing to do, what other men may not have done. 
He turned on his landing lights so that he could locate accurately the enemy forces and direct his own fire from the air down to them. Now, here's the problem. It's dark out. It's night. The enemy can see the plane. I mean, can hear the plane, but they can't see it. And the minute he turns those landing lights on, suddenly he's just painted a massive bullseye on himself. And that's exactly what happened. The enemy redirected their fire toward him so that while this ground unit was able to make their escape, he was shot down and killed. Sellers sacrificed himself for others. He took what was coming for them upon himself that they might go free. Friends, that's what, that's what Jesus did. Not, he did not take it from enemy fire, but in some sense from righteous fire. And it was not that God the Father and God the Son were against one another. It was, the Bible says, God the Father in His love for sinners that caused Christ to be sent forward to take their place. It was God who initiates the reconciliation with us. He is the one who provides the sacrifice. He is the one who provides that justice is meted out, not in our lives as we deserve, but in the life of Christ as an act of mercy towards us. Jesus died on the cross. He was buried, but more than that, he was raised back to life. This is what this morning is all about. And frankly, what every Sunday morning is about. This is why Christians meet on Sunday mornings to gather together for worship. Because as we read earlier, it was on a Sunday morning that Jesus came back to life from the dead. And what that signals is this, that what he did on the cross actually worked. That God was pleased with that. He was pleased to look on Jesus and see him as the object of sin and not us. That he is alive now as the Savior King over all things. That he has not just defeated sin, but he has defeated death. So even as he has raised back to life, the promise is for all who worship Christ, they too will one day not be held down by death. But they will be raised back up to life to live forever in heaven with God. In being raised back to life, we are told that Jesus has given all authority in heaven and on earth, the authority to judge on the last day. Here's the thing. The day of judgment is still coming. The day of judgment is still coming. And for all those who continue in their idolatry, who continue to make up their own gods and worship them, whatever they may do, may even be called Jesus, but may not be the Jesus of the Bible. They will be judged for their sin. Rightly so. But Jesus makes this promise. He says, if you put away your idols and you come to me, if you acknowledge me as Savior and King, if you see that I took your place on the cross, that I took the sin judgment that was coming to you, if you believe that and trust that, and if you give your life over to me, then you not need do anything to make yourself right with God. You don't live a good life. You don't give money to a church or perform religious duty. You just look to me and what I did for you, and you will come to know God. I will give you eternal life. I will give you forgiveness of sins more than that, more than that, not just that your sins are judged in Christ. Christ says the righteous life that I have will be counted as your life before God. So there is nothing to stand in between you and God in intimate fellowship the way he desires, the way you were created to be. It was this talk of the resurrection, though, that caused some to reject Paul and his message, though others believed. Verse 32. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed. 
just like these Athenian philosophers, we have a choice today. We can either mock Paul or we can believe him. If you're here and you're a Christian, you may think you've already made that decision and you're done. But consider this. How you live your life, how you actually worship Christ like you say you will, could either bring him glory or it could bring mockery to him. The question is, does your life add up to what you say you believe? And again, it's not that, that living a good life makes you right with God. No, living a good life flows out of being made right with God by trusting in Jesus, by looking to him as your Savior. But just, just picture in your mind, if we were to ask your lost friends, people that don't go to church, and they would say, uh, you know, he says that he worships Jesus, that Jesus is his God, what would they say? But they say, yeah, I can see that. I can see that. Always talking about him. Always reading that book about him. Always trying to tell me about him. Never says a bad word about him. Yeah, he's that. Or, or they say, really? I find that hard to believe. Why do you find it hard to believe? Well, I see how he spends his money. I see uh, how he treats me. Didn't Jesus say he was to love people? He's not very loving towards me. I'm his neighbor. I don't think he really loves Jesus like he says he does. I think he worships movies and his family and the sports that he plays on the weekends. That's what I think he worships. Is that what they would say? If so, then you're making a mockery of Jesus. You're not giving him the worship that is due his name. And what we must do, if that is the predicament we find ourselves in, is to look again to his death and resurrection. Look again at the offer he makes to go to him and find living water for our souls that we would never thirst again. Look to him, the offer of being our life and our resurrection, and know that he is worthy of the sacrifice of our life. He is worthy of all our worship beyond any God that we could come up with. But then again, some of you may be here and you may not be a Christian. Again, we would just say, remember that what Paul explained all those years ago is still true today. God created you. He built evidence for himself right into the fabric of the universe as the creator. He's built it into you and your very soul and that longing, that yearning you have for fulfillment and satisfaction. God is the only one who can fill that desire. He is the only one that can fill that need. More than that, he has sustained our life even this day, giving us life and breath. And God says, I'm not hard to find. I'm not, I'm, I'm not hiding behind the clouds playing, playing peekaboo, thinking, well, maybe they'll find me, maybe they won't. No, he's standing now saying, I've sent forth my son. He came and he told you about me. He died and then I brought him back to life. So it will be clear, I love you. And I desire to forgive your sin and to be in relationship with you. So the simple question for us is this. Are we going to embrace that gift of Christ, that gift of salvation and forgiveness that he offers, or are we going to reject it? Are we going to reject the risen Christ, to turn away from his authority, to renounce the relationship that he offers? If we embrace him, if we find our salvation in him, then here's the, here's the thing. We don't just add him to the pile of gods in our life. We junk the rest in favor of him. Because, number one, we don't need them. They won't satisfy. And number two, he's worth all of our love and our worship. When we see the beauty and the glory of his person and character, when we see the, the amazing love that he poured out for us on the cross, we will see he deserves all the worship of our life. So before you leave this place, make it clear in your own mind. Make it clear before others who you love who you serve, who you worship. Make it clear who is your God.
Father, as we think about Jesus Christ, as we think about how he revealed you to us, we are so thankful for his coming. And we pray, dear God, that you would send your spirit to open our minds and hearts to, to grasp with joy this good news of gospel message. Father, that though we are idolaters, though we spurn the relationship you desire with us, God, you have done everything necessary to restore it through your son, Jesus Christ. God, I pray that if there are those that are here that do not know you, that do not believe that, that do not understand that, God, you will make it clear to them through this gospel message that they have heard. God, continue to work in their minds and hearts and bring them to faith in Jesus Christ. God, he deserves to be worshipped by every living being in every nation around this world. May that be true of us today as well. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.